expressed in this podcast did not necessarily reflect the view of Wolfpack Research or any of its officers. The views and opinions expressed by guests are their own and their appearance on this program does not imply an endorsement of them or any entity they represent. We are not investment advisors. We hold no registrations with the SEC, FINRA, or any other regulatory agency, and none of the opinions expressed on this podcast should be considered investment advice. Listeners should assume that we have positions in and stand to benefit from any stock or other security mentioned on this podcast. Do your own research before making investment decisions. Welcome to the Wolf Den, everybody. This is Dan David coming back at you with the pack. And by pack, I mean Sound Carl. That's right. That's right. <laughs> okay. Let's hope that's all Sound Carl says the whole time. And Sound Andrew, because it bothers Sound Carl that I, I gave Andrew a name. Today, we have Dr. Matthew Hamill as an assistant professor of medicine at John Hopkins University, where he studies all aspects of sexually transmitted infections, STIs, and HIV. This includes prevention, treatment, and retention in care, research, focus, and rapid point-of-care diagnosis for STI, and low-income settings as well, which we all greatly appreciate. He provides uh, patient-focused treatment for those with risk of STI, HIV, including pre-exposure. Dr. Hamill is UK-trained physician. He received his medical degree in 1998, trained in internal medicine, followed by uh, sexual health HIV training in London, UK, and spent three years conducting research and Soweto, South Africa. In addition to his primary affiliation with Johns Hopkins University of Medicine, he is also affiliated with the Department of Population, Family, and Reproductive Health at the Bloomberg School of Health. Thank you, Michael Bloomberg. So, Dr. Hamill, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. Thank you for the kind introduction, and thank you for for inviting me. Yeah, we, we have a bit to cover here. Your massive background in HIV and AIDS, I I still think that that is something that we don't talk about enough. It's still around, but prescient in the news is monkeypox. And I assume you've done some work or study on that as well. What would you like to talk about first? Kind of go back and and address your first question about um, HIV and it still being a problem. I just wanted to endorse that uh, comment that um, HIV and, and AIDS are still huge problems globally. 38 million people um, living with HIV is estimated. The landscape of HIV and AIDS has changed dramatically since um, the mid um, to late 1990s, but hundreds of thousands of people are either becoming newly infected or dying each year, and that includes includes adults and children um, all over the world. You make the comment that the landscape has changed a great deal since the 1990s. I'll tell you something, it's changed a great deal since the 1980s. I mean, one way of looking at it um, is that HIV epidemic had its infancy and childhood in the, in the 80s, and then another, another stage in the 90s when highly active um, antiretroviral therapy became um, available and more widely available. And then more recently, in the last um, couple of decades, HIV has changed dramatically, so people have a near normal life expectancy, children, people are doing the jobs that they want to do. Most people are taking a single pill once a day. Uh, wow. Oh, it's not the Magic Johnson cocktail anymore? No, it's, it's um, the year 2000. When people were still taking numerous pills three times a day, sometimes on an empty stomach, sometimes with a liter of water, you know, and had a lot of side effects. Yeah, it's very toxic, uh, some of those pills. Right, and... Um, 
you know, people really endured some of those side effects because the, there wasn't really a choice. The choice was, you know, take the available medication and survive, or um, if you didn't take the available medication, then your life would be limited. Whereas now, you know, the in 2022, uh, when I meet a patient living with HIV for the first time and start them on therapy, my, my outlook is really positive. I show them the options, of which there are many. There are many single pill combinations where three drugs or more are squeezed together into a single pill. And, you know, some of these pills are quite small. They're not big horse pills. It's nice to know the clinical term is horse pill from a doctor. <laughs> yeah, I think that might be my clinical term. No, no, we all use it. There you go. I think my experience is, I, I think I'm a bit older than you, doctor. I live through as a teenager and early adult, the late 80s and 90s, and devastating, absolutely devastating. Uh, I lost family members. My, my aunt had uh, three brothers that were hemophiliacs and two nephews, all died in, in the late 80s and 90s. You know, the gay community was absolutely ravaged. Lost many friends there too. And it was just, it was just a horrible thing to see, right, that, that existed back then prolonged your life in such a way that uh, it made it horrible for the last six months to a year, I think. And then you end up dying of complications like pneumonia uh, related to HIV. So I can tell you where I was when Magic Johnson came out and said, I, I have AIDS. I mean, it was like one of those moments where like Car Carl can tell you where he was when Princess Di died. That it was a moment yes. like that for me with Magic Johnson. It's amazing that he's alive today. And like he says, he's cured. Is that true that he's cured? Can you be cured? The response to that question is, is, is complicated. I preface a lot of my responses with that there are now four people in the world who have been cured of HIV. And that means that somebody who was living with HIV received a, a stem cell transplant and they were transplanted with cells that um, were, are resistant to HIV. So if you imagine that somebody, so these are four people with aggressive cancers um, who had to essentially have their immune systems wiped out right. and replaced with um, a donor immune system where, um, where there's a genetic mutation, which means those immune cells are essentially resistant to acquiring HIV. So there are four people who are cured. Like now. a painful reset button. Yeah, well, a reset button that um, your chances of dying are pretty high. Oh, wow. The procedure, the, the procedure itself is dangerous then. Well, the, the having, a, having an aggressive malignancy and having a, um, a bone marrow transplant where you are rendered defenseless to common organisms that right. you know, other people would encounter in their daily lives and have no symptoms whatsoever. So people talk about cure and patients who I provide care for will frequently ask me about cure. You know, my, my response is that the people who have been cured in, in, in inverted commas are those who may have, lost, may have easily lost their lives. It's just that the uh, hematologists, the oncologists who were taking care of them, they had the presence of mind to find a donor that had this specific, uh, specific mutation. And didn't those people like always exist? Because, uh, I, you know, I did have somebody in my life who had been with somebody for turns out, uh, 
period of time that, that had AIDS or was at least HIV positive, I should say. And this person just was completely immune to it. Yeah, there's a, there's a, um, a genetic mutation. It's called a Delta 33 mutation, um, deletion. Changes the configuration of the, the, the um, sort of the docking station, if you like, on the surface of immune cells that HIV, the, the, the virus targets. Mm-hmm. And attaches to. Right. And because that, because that attachment uh, molecule is, is, is changed, because of this genetic mutation, then the virus cannot attach, so can't um, in, get inserted into the immune cell and then um, you know, integrate and stuff. There are, there are lots of speculation as to you know, why these people exist, and it's estimated that somewhere in the region of 10% of people with Northern European, of Northern European descent will have this wow. mutation. This person was Northern European. Some of the previous hypotheses were that... Um, because the bacteria that causes, causes, causes plague uses, um, uses the same um, sort of docking mechanism, then people with that mutation were selected for during, during um, the plague in, in medieval. Bubonic plague. Yeah. I guess it's, it's normal to have a percentage of the population that's immune from some of these plagues, whether it, it be as Carl so eloquently put the bubonic plague <laughs> or even like COVID or, you know, things of this nature. Yeah. We, we all have our um, own genetic makeup that, that makes us different from other people. And we respond to different infections in different ways. Um, some people will be, you know, relatively resistant to becoming infected um, and others will have very mild disease. And then another person could have, exposed to exactly the same uh, organism and do really badly so get very sick, develop sepsis and, and die. So if there are four people that have been cured with this bone marrow transplant and arguably from, from, from the people who are resistant, you're taking these strains. I'd even heard in, in some Asian countries, I believe China, they're... The twins. They, yeah, they, they genetically added a couple of girls to be HIV resistant. Is that true? To the best of my knowledge, that's that's true. That was um, you know, a highly controversial sort of scientific experiment, if that's if that's the correct terminology to use. They have a different kind of FDA over there. <laughs> Not the same approval. <laughs> right, and you know, to be honest with you, I don't know enough about the the science and the validity. So you're talking about CRISPR, the gene editing. Right, I think that's the, the that's the technique that the uh, Chinese scientists use to um, to sort of um, genetically engineered those twins with the same principle you're sort of creating this environment that is sort of cellular um, immunological environment that is resistant to acquiring for those who who do and you said 38 million people are, are living with it today i imagine there's some number of people that get it every day what's the prognosis for them so for people being uh, diagnosed with with hiv in 2020 the prognosis, generally speaking, is excellent. Other than you have HIV. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. So in, and the analogy that, that, that I make when I'm having these discussions with patients is that HIV is a chronic manageable condition that can be, uh, that can be very well managed by an individual patient in conjunction with their provider. So much so that, um, that, their, that their life expectancy is pretty much on par with somebody who is not living with HIV. 
so the, the, the prognosis in that respect is, um, is really excellent. And if you compare that with the prognosis, for instance, of somebody with poorly controlled diabetes or you know, untreated hypertension or you know, chronic airways disease, um, all of those things that can, can, can really have a, an impact on life expectancy, then living with HIV compares very fav- favorably to some of those other chronic manageable medical conditions. You know, when I have that conversation, I don't um, try and pretend that living with HIV is the same as, as living with high blood pressure, because there, there are still um, stigmas attached to HIV that aren't attached to other. Yeah, unfortunately, I, I would agree. Unfortunately, I completely agree too that um, you know, this is still a case. I think the prognosis also depends on who you are and where you live. And by that, I mean... Yeah, your access to medical treatment. Yeah, your access to medical treatment, whether that's in, in the US, whether that's in um, resource-limited settings, that that access is key. And it all starts really with the, the, the point of entry is a person having a, uh, a test and get, getting diagnosed. And it sounds so straightforward and so easy. Well, you know, somebody just needs to get a HIV test, but we, we know that there are so many barriers that are put in people's way prevent them taking that really um, basic step of you know, knowing their HIV status. Even here in the United States, much less in a third world country. I think in, in, I think in the United States, the, barri- the, the barriers can be really huge. And I've worked in, in South Africa where HIV testing is so normalized. It's, it's part of um, you know, most medical consultation. So people you know, don't have to go out and seek testing in the same way. And that there are you know, there's a whole culture of voluntary counseling and testing um, available in a very mainstream way in places like South Africa, for instance, that, that aren't available in the same way here in the U.S. Well, you don't have to convince us that our medical system is screwed up. We're, we're, we're on board. Yeah, we're, we're there. <laughs> okay, so, I mean, I guess the prognosis, way better than the late 90s and light years better than the late 80s. Which is, which is great. It's still not something you want to get, but you know, if you do medical treatment and I guess what we do best, I think here in the United States, which I mean, maybe you can opine on this doctor. It seems like we're very, very good at making something chronic <laughs> and livable and, and at a cost every day. And I mean, I used to really hammer that point home before they went ahead and cured hepatitis B or something. We finally cured something, and Jonas Salk can rest. He wasn't the last person. But why do you think it is that we don't really cure anything? Well, I, you know, my own own field of infectious diseases and STIs in particular, then I, I would I would push back on that statement. I think that we cure a lot. So we cure a lot of a lot of STIs. So things like chlamydia, gonorrhea, syphilis, all of which. Yeah, back in the fifties and sixties. I mean. <laughs> As much as science has come forward, we still can't cure, I guess, herpes, right? Correct. We, we, can't, we can't cure herpes. We can't cure HIV. Hepatitis C uh, treatment and cure has been uh, an amazing uh, progress um, in recent decades. But you're right. There are many um, infectious diseases that, that cannot be cured. There are many that can. Some of the big killers, like malaria, tuberculosis, for instance, yeah. they, they can be cured. And then in non-infectious diseases or you know, uh, non-communicable diseases, so things like hypertension and diabetes, 
they can be cured. So diabetes, type 2 diabetes can often be cured. Yeah, by one self-restraint. <laughs> by methods that sound um, in, in theoretically really easy, but are in fact are some of the most challenging um, things to, to work with patients on. So behavioral changes that could lead to cure of diabetes is certainly possible. And I've seen it many times, both in my medical career and in my, in my, in my, and in my family life. It's incredibly difficult, difficult to, to do. And the, the sustained you know, weight loss and exercise that's required to keep the diabetes at bay is, is a huge commitment. And we live in a society where you know, the nutritional environment that we, that we live in is just not conducive to, to our health. Yeah, agreed. Here in the United States, particularly, uh, self-control is, is not our best feature. But many of the diseases you've talked about that there are cures for, uh, there have been. I'm just, you know, I'm, I'm, I've struggled over the last 30 years with the amount of science and, and money that we put into it. Seems like we did our best work in the 50s and 60s, you know? Well, one way of looking at it is that the sort of the, the low-hanging fruit, if you like, some of the uh, you know, infectious conditions that have been either eradicated like smallpox or where there are you know, excellent vaccines um, to prevent like measles. In, in some ways, they're low-hanging fruit. I'm not trying to diminish the achievement of that um, generation of scientists who, who were able to develop and roll out those vaccines. But some of the conditions like HIV, for instance, the it's like chasing a moving target. So the virus mutates at a, at a phenomenal rate and trying to develop a vaccine that sort of can control a virus that mutates so rapidly is technically extremely challenging. And the other thing is that some of these viruses, like uh, the herpes viruses, like HIV, once you acquire them, they become integrated into your genome. One clarifying thing that I said, I think before when I mentioned the um, the deletion, I said Delta 33, it's Delta 32. Yeah, I was going to correct you on that. <laughs> yeah. now, now I'm paralyzed with um, self-doubt, and it's all I can do not to look, get on my phone and, 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 and double check. It's one of them. Okay. <laughs> yeah. It's a Delta, Delta 30s. You should just be, if you were an American, you'd just be safe and take them both. And hope for the best. <laughs> yeah, there. So this, this takes us into monkeypox, which is... Very much so in the news, and for a lot of our listeners who are nominally in the market, could have made some money on some of these uh, moving stocks that that are either legitimately helping with monkeypox or just putting in a press release and really just bullshit. We'll be pointing some of those out later. What's the prognosis here? This seems to be growing at an exponential rate. Well, it's not as contagious as COVID. It's pretty. It's contagious to a handshake. I guess I read. So monkeypox is, as you say, it's a, it's a growing problem and cases have, you know, have you know, increased at, a, at an alarming rate across the, across the globe in recent months. So just to kind of give a bit of context, so monkeypox was first recognized as, a, as, a, as an entity in the 50s and the first case in humans was identified in 1970. It's existed um, and is endemic to parts of West and Central Africa. So it's, it's a condition that, that crops up there and that there are outbreaks. The, one of the hypotheses is that because um, smallpox and monkeypox are in the same family, in the orthopox uh, family of viruses, that 
people who, who got smallpox vaccine, so people older than you and I and the generation older than us, received smallpox vaccination and they were relatively protected against monkeypox infection. So since May of this year, first starting in the, in the UK and then in June recognized in the US, uh, monkeypox has spread across the globe in countries that are not historically, uh, where monkeypox is not historically endemic. And you said about um, it's not as deadly as COVID. I was reading a Times article today. I mean, I'll read the New York Times from time to time. I believe they did say, like, it's not airborne. It's not as... Um, you know, arguably not as deadly because there are already treatments, as as you had pointed out, as part of the pox family. There are treatments for it. It's just very, it's very painful. Yeah, I think the the thing about monkeypox is that in comparison with um, with COVID, that it is much less um, easily spread within the community. Remember how when COVID came, it really swept across the the, the nation. Yeah, I was there. And despite us having good treatments for COVID, excellent vaccines, there are still hundreds of people dying from COVID-19 in the US each day. With monkeypox, where there have been in the region of uh, 6,000 cases diagnosed as part of this uh, 2022 outbreak, then there have been five deaths reported to date. There is a lot of fear. There's a lot of anxiety. There's a lot of worry that you can um, sit on a park bench that somebody with monkeypox has sat on um, and then acquire infection. No, I haven't read anything like that anywhere, like from dead services. I, you know, when I said shake hands, that's sweat to possibly cut contact, things of this nature. It's generally sexually transmitted or I would say making out even, kissing, whatever. There's a couple of there's a couple of things that you that you said there that I just wanted to respond to. Um, so the way that monkeypox is spread most efficiently is by close, intimate, skin to skin contact, and that can be sexual or non sexual. It can be spread from um, items that contain monkeypox scabs, towels, bed sheets. If somebody with monkeypox is you know has used those items and then somebody else you know handles them closely, then it's, it's possible that monkeypox can be spread that way. Tree um, secretions like saliva, which often you know, is, is involved in, in kissing or other uh, intimate contact. The question about whether monkeypox is an, is an STI is um, or sexually transmitted infection is contentious, I think it's fair to say. Globally and historically, the sexual transmission was not its main mode of, of spread. What we're seeing in the current um, outbreak is that um, is that around 95% of cases are thought to have been uh, acquired as part of sexual exposure. Well, that's a rather high percentage. Th- that should be considered for anybody that would think they would be at risk. I see you don't call for panic. We're not we're not wiping down every surface. Well, we're already doing that with COVID. Washing your vegetables in bleach. Um, yeah, I mean, I think that monkeypox, at least in the US, at least right now, is uh, within certain sexual networks, social and sexual networks, so predominantly in men who have sex with other men. But monkeypox has been described in children through non-sexual contact and in uh, people who are not part of that um, particular uh, sexual network. So there's a time when a contained uh, epidemic can spread. Sexual networks are not these sort of hermetically sealed 
units, as, as some people think. You know, sexuality is fluid. People, you know, are part of different uh, sexual networks, and that's how an infection like monkeypox can break through and um, start to become generalized. I think we can do things about it. We have a vaccine. We have treatments. We have a lot of knowledge around transmission. And we can provide good public health messaging to people so that they can be informed, they make informed decisions about you know, what they want to do, particularly around their sex lives. Now, is this, is this a true vaccine or is it like the COVID vaccines where it's really immunization that gives you a period of time where you're more resistant? You know, I, I grew up with vaccine, meaning you don't have to worry about this shit anymore, right? Like, <laughs> you're good. Now we got to worry about mutations, I guess. I think we've always had to, we've always had to worry about that. Well, you know, in things like flu, for instance, influenza, we, we need to get a new vaccine every year because the, the virus mutates and we have to develop a new vaccine to sort of match that um, mutation. And, you know, we've seen the same thing with, with COVID-19 where you know, it mutates readily. In terms of the vaccine against monkeypox, it's a much more familiar um, technology. It consists of a, of, a, of a virus, and it's the virus that is um, given to the recipient, and then we make a, an immune response to that, to that virus. There are two different vaccines that could be used in, against monkeypox. There's the existing sort of well-known um, smallpox vaccine. The issue there is that is a live vaccine, so it replicates within, within the person and can cause disease. And then there's the um, Genios um, vaccine that also contains a virus, but that virus is re- replication deficient, so it cannot, um, it cannot grow within the person who's been vaccinated. Like the flu shot. Like a flu shot. It's a, it's a dead chicken embryo or, <laughs> or grown in theirs. I don't know how, actually how, it's a, it's a great question. I don't know how the, um, the MVA, which is the, which is the virus that is the, sort of the vehicle for, for both of those vaccines, is produced whether it's in i think it is in 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 eggs because one of the well the flu shot is for sure i'm not sure about monkeypox yeah well one of the concerns is if someone has a serious allergy to eggs they do have an alternative for them and and i don't mean death i just mean like you know they're, they're, that, they're, that is a question that's asked when you have allergies they there are other ways to grow it but generally that's been the easiest so how did we get the name monkeypox I mean, uh, you said it's been around for a very, very long time. I find it to be an unfortunate name. I don't want any pox, but I don't want to be a monkey either. Or this is like, you know, where there's always that fabled kind of every disease comes from a pig, a bat, or a monkey. Right. Um, so, you know, in, you know, in centuries past, um, other infections um, were called the pox. And, you know, pox describes the this sort of this, the, um, you know, the appearance that these infections create. Right. A pox on all your houses, right? Right. So the, the pox bit, I think, is kind of, um, is very evocative. I think it, it produces an, uh, sort of an emotional response in somebody when they start thinking about uh, pox infection. Except when we talk about chicken pox, nobody kind of gets too stressed out about that. Well, who doesn't love chicken? Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I don't eat monkeys. But I'll have myself some chicken. Neither, neither of those things that I, I would like to eat. But um, you don't eat chicken either. I do not. No. Okay. Well, you know, you're missing out. <laughs> uh, in any event, yeah, I'm going to interject my opinion here, just to say, 
that part of the chicken pox people aren't worried about is when you're a kid, I mean, you're encouraged to get it. Like, I mean, you know, they'll, they'll send you to a chicken pox party. Maybe in our childhood, um, yeah. uh, that was, that was true, but now there's a great vaccine and, um, you know, most children are, are immunized against, um, varicella, which is the, the virus that causes chicken pox and shingles. Yeah. And it's, it's about the familiarity too, you know, chickens we all kind of know and many people love. I'm not one of Yeah. Benign, innocuous, whatever. Mon- you know, monkeys, I don't know. They're just so close to us. A little exotic. Monkeys are, and um, primates are very similar to us. And that is one of the reasons why this virus is capable of infecting both monkeys and, and, Right. Oh, it is. But the, 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 the monkey um, name came because it was recognized in monkeys. But that's not thought to be the main uh, animal host that, that sort of carries this virus around. We think that that's in um, things like rodents in particular. We're back to the rats and the black plague black again. Huh? Plague, yeah, yeah. So, so it's not the bat from the wet market that did all the damage. It's, a, it's the monkey. Well, if it makes you feel better, I don't think rat pox sounds any better. <laughs> <laughs> so, There'd be a different stigma on that yeah, one. <laughs> so what's the prognosis here? So we have a vaccine. This is treatable. We have five people out of 6,000 that have died. I would imagine, I don't know, maybe some comorbidities involved there that, that played a role. Uh, certainly, the report, you know, the, there's not full information on, on the reports. Um, at least one of the um, individuals who died in in, in Brazil was somebody with immunocompromised. So the the others in Spain, I don't know about. I don't know about the, the, the medical um, history. I, I understand that one was young and, and relatively fit, but I don't know the details of that. Well, you know, we, we we miss a lot of details on these things, and it brings me back to one of the questions I've been asking for a couple of years: What is the who for? And not the rock band, the ineffective organization that is arguably or often accused of being corrupt. How helpful do you find? I find them really helpful. I think, you know, they're the organization that I look to for, um, you know, guidance, advice. I think they get a, so bad, they get a rap. bad rap. Well, I think it depends who you talk to. Some people like me love the WHO and think that it's, it, you know, it serves an incredibly important purpose. Any huge organization is not perfect. I completely acknowledge that. But I think that the work that it, that it does really helps to save lives. That, that, that's certainly my opinion. We talked just before about what prognosis for monkeypox is. And one of the things that I just would like to stress is that the vast majority of people who get this infection have a mild, self-limiting infection. They don't need to go to hospital. Nothing bad happens to them. Within about two to four weeks, their um, their rash resolves and their and, um, and their skin returns to normal, and then they get on with their lives. Can get overlooked when um, there's something as new as this that, that's kind of entering into our public into the public consciousness. And it's pretty apparent they have it, right? It's not like COVID where you could have it for two weeks and not know it and be spreading it everywhere. Like when you get the rash, you, yeah. You, when you get you the rash, it. you've got it. Um, for sure, and you're infectious during that during the time that you from when you develop the rash until all of the the, the lesions are scabbed and new skin has grown um, underneath. But you know, there there we're learning a lot about monkeypox during this current uh, epidemic 
because there are a significant proportion of people who don't get the warning signs that they're developing uh, monkeypox. So traditionally, you think that there's something called a prodrome. So like when you sort of, like with flu, where you feel unwell for a couple of days with sort of aches and pains. The same thing classically is associated with, with monkeypox. So a person may have a fever, headache, um, muscle aches, and then develop the rash. But what, we, what we're seeing, and I've certainly seen um, myself, is that somebody doesn't have any of those warning signs that go straight on to develop a rash. And then there are data coming through that there are people who may be who may have monkeypox and have no symptoms whatsoever. So I think it, 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 it I think we will understand a lot more about the natural history of monkeypox at the end of this year than we than we did at the beginning of the year. Okay. Does it as far as the rash goes, does it present in any certain place, arm, stomach or could it could it come from anywhere, leg? Yeah, it can certainly um it can certainly um be on any part of the body. You know, more classically, you'd see it on, on the limbs, on the face. What we're seeing in the current uh, outbreak is genital lesions and perianal lesions. And I think that's one of the other reasons that... Um, perianal re- lesions? Oh, my God. That's got to be painful. And, and that is one of the real problems with monkeypox. So I can say that this is a mild self-limiting illness, and that is true for most people. People who get rectal infection with monkeypox can be in incredible pain. And it's, it's yeah. miserable, like really miserable. They can't, um, you know, they're in constant pain. They can't use the bathroom. When they try to use the bathroom, then it makes things worse. So people get constipated, avoiding using, right. the, using the bathroom. So I think that that's one of the features of, of, of monkeypox that we're currently seeing is that, you know, a significant proportion of people who end up in the hospital, even though that's the minority, are in there for pain control. You get monkeypox, you're like, thank God it's on my arm. It could be worse. I think one of the things you're saying, look, this is something we need to take seriously. We need to study. Thank goodness we're, we're ahead of it. I don't think we're ahead of it. No. Well, as far as like we're not developing a vaccine like we did for COVID, right? We have, we have therapies. We have a vaccine, but it isn't available. You know, there's, the, F- the FDA let the uh, the license expire or whatever, right? Wasn't it a couple of weeks ago? They missed ordered or they didn't renew the well, I order. I, I, I don't know the de- details of that, but yeah, that's my that's my understanding. That uh, So we have this vaccine, but people can't get it. People are calling and calling and calling and calling to try and get access to, you know, a, a few hundred or a few thousand vaccines when the people who, who are at risk um, are in the tens if not hundreds of thousands. So couldn't Uncle Joe just say, listen, warp speed. We need some, we need some of this uh, whipped up. Wartime act. Yeah. Post haste. I think that that's what is, is happening. Um, yes, it's certainly what we need. So we need to capitalize on the public health infrastructure that came with COVID and, you know, use that infrastructure to be able to offer immunization to people at risk to try and prevent this from becoming a more generalized uh, epidemic within the U.S. I think that's, a, that's even a remote possibility. Whoa. I do. I certainly hope that that doesn't happen. And I think that some of the um, comparisons with HIV have been kind of overblown or done in a, a, an insensitive way. But um, if you think back to the you know, 1984, 1985, then HIV was considered a, a disease that only affected gay men. Well, look. 
we're always going to have bigots and homophobes. If you're listening, stop listening. You're not helping society in any way. It does, it does bother me in the sense that, okay, as if like in the last couple of weeks, we have 6,000 cases. I just leap to the assumption after coming out of COVID and how miserable that was that we're jumping through hoops to make sure that this doesn't become pandemic or an epidemic. Yeah, and I think that, um, you know, we have the, we have the resources. We, we know what we need to do. The availability of vaccine is a real rate-limiting step. And I think it's causing a huge amount of frustration in both communities who are most um, impacted by monkeypox as well as um, providers who really want to do something in order to um, offer some protection to, to the communities that we serve. And what is the vaccine? Is it, what, what is the name of it? I don't actually know the name of it. The one that, we, the one that we're using um, is called Genios. Yeah, or Genios, Genios. depending on one's pronunciation. Um, yours will be better than mine, so I think go, go with however, go with. Are you going to say aluminium? <laughs> we can have a whole podcast on that, yeah. Well, we're not going to. It's aluminum. It's salt. <laughs> I stand correct. That's all it is. Andrew was just kind of piping. That's the uh, certainly the stock that's trading. It's it's a oh is that Siga? vaccine Siga? company? No, no, Siga makes a treatment for it. the The vaccines in Bavaria Nordisk or something like that. Uh, okay, Nova Nordisk. We could Google okay. it. Okay, yeah, that's what Carl was supposed to be for. All right, well, we're going to get that information out on Twitter so people so people do know. We're not going to. We're not going to guess. We're going to, that, at Delta 32 or 3, that's going to be out there. We're going to. You know, I won't, be able to, I won't be able to look at my colleagues in the eye at, at Hopkins. Uh, nobody looks each other in the eye there anyway. You guys are always looking down at your charts. It is Bavarian Nordic. Bavarian Nordic. There you go. One in a row. One in a row for Andrew. So, yeah, that's the vaccine we need. Is there anything else anybody needs to know about monkeypox, HIV in general? Any other kind of STD or? Yeah, I think that the, the message around uh, STIs uh, is, is, is one of real. We don't call them STDs anymore. Is that the message? Kind of being um, reframed as, uh, as a sexually transmitted infection. New, new branding. Rather than a disease. A disease implies that somebody has sort of um, signs or symptoms. And Dr. Hamill, it is Delta 32. I expect an honorary doctorate from John Hopkins. Just, I've got a piece of paper here. I'm just scribing it as Believe me, any degree Carl has is just a piece of paper. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for that, Carl. All six of them. Clarification. Uh, I'm sorry, we interrupted you. You were, you were talking about STIs. Yeah, so the 2020 um, surveillance data that came out, so that's the most up-to-date data that we have, show that gonorrhea and syphilis are at an all-time high. What the hell? Nursing homes. Nursing why do, you, be, why like, do you become an expert all of a sudden on like long bygone sexually transmitted, whatever the I stands for? Uh, <laughs> it's the branding. It's the branding. Nursing homes, the ST, STIs are rampant in nursing is, homes. Is that Steve. true, doctor? No, not that I know of. Um, oh, I love it. I think that what we've, I, I'm not sure what that statement is based on, but I think we have seen. Uh, I, he's Googling stuff. Don't be impressed well i think the advantage that i don't that i don't that i don't have 
Certainly, we've seen increases in some STIs in older people, uh, but to my knowledge, they're not rampant in, in, in nursing, home. I, nursing homes. I stand to be corrected. So those infections are increasing. Um, congenital syphilis, where a baby is born with, with syphilis or dies in utero, has the rate has increased by more than 200 percent in the last in the previous five years it's astonishing it's terrible it's what why why it's a completely preventable um situation we shouldn't be seeing congenital syphilis in the u.s in, in 2022 partly it is around provision of prenatal services partly it's around sort of real terms divestment in sexual health services partly yeah. it's driven by uh, substance use disorder. So this, there, there, there are many things that uh, are in play, particularly when we're talking around um, around um, congenital syphilis uh, infection. So that that's just to give it a bit of context. Things are, you know, the things like HIV care and management. We've got every cause to be optimistic about that. The other STIs are running. Out of control in, in in many parts of the many parts of the country. I think other sort of kind of good news stories when we're thinking about HIV and, and um, you know sexual health and well-being. So HIV pre-exposure prophylaxis, so PrEP, is something that has really transformed has really transformed many people's lives. So either a daily pill or now by injection, people can access preventative measures, which mean that if they come into contact with somebody who has untreated HIV, their risk of acquiring infection is extremely low. So that's, that's a, you know, that is, that's a good news story that PrEP is something that has changed many people's lives. It's still not being accessed by many of the people who need it most, but it's definitely out there and available. We even have a treatment for falling in love with somebody who has HIV. So in recent years, we've, we, we've sort of discovered and we feel very confident about, as a, as a medical community, that if somebody's living with HIV, they're on treatment, they have an undetectable viral load, then they cannot transmit infection sexually to another person. So the campaign is U equals U, so undetectable, so that the viral load is undetectable in blood equals U. The second U stands for untransmissible. But you would still want to take the preventative. If you were the partner, you, you, you might, many don't, you know, there are couples and individuals who make decisions within the context of that relationship, but there are data now in heterosexual people, in men who have sex with men, that undetectable equals untransmissible. So that the, that there isn't a risk of um, transmitting HIV to a, to a sex partner. Charlie Sheen with, uh, was it Brie Larson or whatever? The porn star yeah. sued him over that. The minute uh, there's some kind of Chiron or something that comes across as Charlie Sheen, I stop listening. And it's been that way for like 20 years. <laughs> I, I'm done with that guy. Cody went to Mexico, got the cure. And- but I will say this, you know, the whole monkeypox and HIV. Us guys get it. Yeah, it's, it's tough. It's tough to be a guy. I mean, gay men are, are really getting it bad. I mean, gay women seem to get away with it. They, they don't really have the, the stigma or the diseases in, involved. and. Every time they think we have it great, look at this stuff. This is, this is not easy stuff to deal with. Yeah, I, I agree. I completely agree with you. And I think that in, in large part, that is really dri- driven by, by stigma. They, 
a child with monkeypox that has acquired that infection because of contact, you know, household contact with, with, with a person with infection or from another child. There's, there's very little stigma, I think, attached to that. I think you take the same virus and you put it into an, in, in an adult within a sexual, whether the transmission is within a sexual context, then people's um, assign blame, yeah, they, um, they become accusatory and um, shunning. And I think you know, those are the things that I don't, I don't think judging is a word in that context, but I, you know what I, I, I mean. No, I, I think it's appropriate. I think, I think I've seen that. And, you know, look, I think we've, we've come a long way as a society with acceptance of individual choice. You know, we're just looking for the communicable diseases to play along too. <laughs> Spread it around a little bit. <laughs> They're not real tolerant of unvaccinated COVID people. I mean, I'm not I tolerant of that. unvaccinated. I'm tolerant of everybody. But, but I mean, the first question anybody gets is, uh, you know, are you vaccinated if, if you have right. COVID? And yeah, I had my own personal experience with that. I had to go to a pharmacy when I had COVID and my pharmacist was kind of huffy and puffy about it. And did you get, and I did, of course, but he's asking me if I got vaccinated and I'm like, I just wanted to slam the guy's head through the counter. I am asking for what was prescribed by my doctor. You're supposed to fill it. Right. It's like, <laughs> I don't and need by your judgment. the way, if you really cared, you wouldn't make me use this universal pen attached to this credit card machine to sign something, you know, in the most disease ridden place on the planet. Right. Yeah. Sorry, you just brought up a, a really bad memory. I can tell that just by just by. Oh, I was mad. And it's like, it's like people, you know, I've seen so many patients over the years who, who will have seen other providers and. Often the first question is how did you how did you get it? As if that is of any relevance. Well, it is to the doctor, but not to the pharmacist. It, it can it can be of relevance, but you know, um, in terms of thinking about somebody holistically and what their risks might be for other things. But as an opening gambit, when you're, you're yeah, having yeah. a conversation with somebody whose whose life is changing in front of you, to ask. A question that is has got a judgment attached to it. I think from most people would feel it that way. I think that we are we are judgmental, and you know it it serves us it serves us it serves no good purpose, particularly when we're trying to address communicable diseases. Totally agree, and I applaud you for your work. You know, it's it, there are a few occasions where we have people that are doing so-called God's work, certainly selfless work, and dangerous at times. If not to your own health, your, your mental health, because it's a sad business to be in when things don't work out. That is, that is true. Um, but, you know, I, I have to say that I, I love my job. I've been a doctor for since 1998, and you know, I consider it a real privilege. I love it. I love coming to work. I love hearing people's stories. I love being part of the, you know, I, it's not the work that I do. People do work for themselves, and I just guide them along the way. And I think, you know, there's, there's no job like it. Activist short selling. <laughs> yeah, you, you find a company and you pick a fight with it. That's really healthy. I can, I can tell you love what you do. I, you know, I hope there are many more people like you that we get to speak to. And how can people follow your work? I have some published work on generally around STIs with people that are interested in that. I don't have Twitter. Can you actually hear Carl like breathing to get in here to talk about the nursing homes again? Because I no, no, I'm not. Well, we appreciate your time, Doctor Hamill, uh, and we wish you the best. And uh, 
well, look, if this thing goes badly, we hope it doesn't, but maybe we'll have you back as a returning champion. If 6,000 goes to 600,000, people are going to want to hear more about it. Dr. Matthew Hamill, everybody, and uh, thank you for joining us.